Well, we're continuing this series on Where is My Honor? And last time I spoke, we discussed God as the lawgiver or rule maker. I want to take one more on that particular uh, function of God. This is a critical issue because most of the world thinks that the lawgiver is gone, that his law is gone anyway. So if the lawgiver is gone and the rule maker is gone, then you might as well say God is gone. And to them, he is. They do not understand who God is, what he is, where he's going, and what's going on. Because when you discard almost all of his rule book, then you're really discarding uh, him. Let's go to Galatians 5, because... As we ended last time, we were discussing in the Psalms the attitude of David and how he looked upon and leaned upon God's law. And yet, even as David was a man after God's own heart, as it says in Acts 13.22, he had his difficulties, he had his problems with that. So even though he recognized God and looked to God's law, his statutes, his judgments, and so on, As he says over and over in the Psalms, and particularly Psalm 119, he still had a war going on. So here in Galatians 5, it pretty well lays out for us what the problem is, where the battle lies, and what we need to concentrate on in terms of God and his word. He says in Galatians 5.13, For brethren, you have been called... To liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now, James calls the law of God the perfect law of liberty. So when Paul says you were called to liberty, he's not saying you've been called and liberated from the law, but if you keep the law, you will be liberated from a lot of things that are unlawful and ungodly and will bring you pain and problems and difficulties. It is not the law that is the problem. It's the breaking of the law that brings penalties that is bad. So he's talking to a people who had been lawless, had been ruleless, had lived by their way in a society going its way, and no one was going to tell them what to do or how to go about it. They lived as they wished to live, just as our society today has become more and more lawless. They make more and more laws, but even those in positions of authority do not keep themselves nor nor enforce those laws that they don't like. They pick and choose. And they have done away with, really, the law of this land, which is the Constitution, to do it their way. And what we see is a nation that is getting more and more insecure, more shaky, a culture that is falling apart, that is not ruled by law anymore. And it's creating all kinds of problems. So, that law which gave us in this country liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, however you might define that, the Constitution has been swept aside by the courts, by the Congress, by the President especially, 
And we are becoming more and more ruled by emotion and human feelings and not by a rule of law. And what is happening to us as a nation? <clears throat> Our liberties are being removed. We're becoming more and more enslaved day by day to the whims of whatever government, city, county, state, or federal, decides to do in our lives. So our liberty is being removed by the removal of the law. The law guarantees peace, happiness, and liberty. And God's law is no exception. I use the Constitution and the beginning of the law of this nation because for a while it was a fairly free nation ruled by law. That has changed. And religion has done away with God's rules, and therefore they are aimless, rudderless, don't know who they worship, and in fact worship someone other than the true God, even though they know it not. So the law gives us liberty as we keep it. As we break it, it chains us with all kinds of curses, penalties, emotional unrest and upset, and problems. Verse 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Don't do anything to your neighbor you would not want done to you. Very good rule of thumb, a very good summary of the law. <clears throat> now, lest we misinterpret that or justify something our way, uh, that law is expanded way beyond just that summarization so that we might understand how that is to be applied. That's why we have a whole book instead of just verse 14. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. So we are to be treated like we, or treat others like we wish to be treated, but if we don't do that, you don't like to be bitten or devoured, do you? You don't like to be chewed on the way you think, the way you live, what you say, where you are. You don't like your neighbors biting and chewing on you. We don't like that at all. But then we take the liberty of doing it to them, even though we don't want it done to us. And first thing you know, we begin to bite and devour one another and hurt one another and destroy that which is to be a body of Christ, a family of God. We destroy it by the hurt that we do to one another because we're not keeping verse 13. Most generally, any time there is upset, there is frustration, there is offense given or taken, it's because somebody is not living up to verse 13 and verse 14. That's why. So, when there is upset, maybe we should come back and read Galatians 5:13 and 14 and figure out how it is that we, not they, are breaking the principle given here. Verse 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
Now, we are in a society that is bent on fulfilling the lusts of the flesh in a multitude of different ways. There's all kinds of different desires that people have that are unlawful and ungodly and should not be. And human nature will find every last one of them. <clears throat> so, we're getting down here a little bit, or really quite a little bit, into what David's difficulty was. Intellectually, I haven't said anything you and I do not understand, have I? In our head, we understand we ought to treat our neighbors as ourselves. The problem is, our human nature puts self first, and therefore it is very, very difficult to live up to it. We have the understanding. The world does not, really, even though they might quote that one particular verse, love everybody as you do yourself. They don't really understand God's Word in the Bible, and they don't have God's Holy Spirit. So they face a real difficulty. We do understand. But still, we have our difficulties, don't we? That was David's difficulty. He was like us. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Paul said in a different place he found a war going on within him because he knew what was right, and yet his body, his mind, his emotions always made him want to do what he knew was not right. So we wrestle with the rule giver, the lawmaker. We wrestle because human nature does not want to do it God's way. We want to make our own rules. We understand that people should not lie, cheat, steal, whatever. But then we find ourselves wanting to do those things. In other words, they should, we understand society should not do that. We understand no one else should do that. But we'll find a way to justify why I should do that. Because we are self-centered. It says, these are contrary, the one to the other, the flesh and the spirit, the true understanding and what the flesh wants to do. They're, they're just the opposite. So, that you cannot do the things that you would. There again, Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, those are the things I wind up doing. And he's saying the same thing here in a little bit different way. We know what we should do, but we have our trouble. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the penalty of the law. Penalty is what removes your liberty, your freedoms. It's not the law that removes it, it's breaking it, and the penalty of the law. And that should be translated that way. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. So, he wants to make it crystal clear what the rule maker has to say, which is by the rule of God, and what comes by nature of man, and of Satan for that matter, influencing the nature of man. Now the works of the flesh 
are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, those things are quite common in our society, are they not? They're all about us. But those are works of the flesh. Uncleanness and lasciviousness should be really translated lawlessness. There's a law for others, but not for me. I make my own way. I do my own thing. I will ignore the rule maker and do what I want to do. So we all find this working in our flesh. Idolatry, putting other things ahead of God. Witchcraft, looking to Satan rather than the true God. Satan does not go by the rules. And this society does not go by the rules. And it worships, whether it knows it or not, the devil, because he is the leader. Hatred, that comes quite easy to human nature, doesn't it? I doubt if there's anybody in the room that hasn't hated somebody somewhere at some time. Because it's natural not to like or to have terrible feelings towards somebody that you think does not do things the way you want or according to your will and your purpose and what you desire. So you'll have hard feelings toward them. Uh, variance or contempt, uh, contempt, emulations, which means envy or malice toward others. If you look these words up, they're early King James. They don't really fit today. What, what's an emulation? Envy or malice toward others or indignation. Uh, wrath, anger. God is slow to anger. He does not hold his wrath for very long. And he's told us here at the end that his wrath will only last for a short while. Now, to you and me, it seems like it's been a long time, <clears throat> but it hasn't really. Uh, if a day is as a thousand years, God's anger dissip dissipates very rapidly when people change their attitudes. Uh, that is part of the problem. If we think his anger is lingering, it's because the church and we have not sufficiently changed our attitudes so that God's anger would dissipate. If we keep doing those same things and thinking those thoughts and leading our lives in a way that is uh, unenjoyable to Him, that goes against His rules, against what He wishes of us, then won't He remain angry? I found with my children, if I would spank them, and it changed their attitude, so they weren't thinking and doing what they had been doing, my anger would go away. And then I could sit them on my lap, maybe, and, and hug them and love them and, and tell them that I loved them. But as long as the attitude did not change, there was still not peace. Sometimes I had to paddle them again until that bitter, rebellious, selfish attitude changed. And they became sweet and lovable and meek and humble, repentant. 
Then I was done. Then I was happy. And God is the same way. As long as we still have, I'll do it my way, in our attitude, He can't be happy with that. So He will keep pounding on us until we repent, till we're loving, giving, serving, treating each other as we wish to be treated. Because all the things we're reading about here in verse 20, 19, 20, 21, are self-centeredness, selfish. I want to do this because it looks good, feels good, tastes good to me. It's not according to the law, but that's the way I want it. Most of our anger is unrighteous anger. A lot of it is self-righteous anger, but it is not godly anger. Strife, you know, things aren't working well. We're not getting along with each other because there's strife between us or bad feelings or hurt feelings. We need to get past those because they are self-centered as well. That's where they come from, is self. I get my feelings hurt. And sedition, which means disunion or division. If you see somebody who is divisive, creating disharmony, uh, that is because they are in a carnal, selfish attitude and not willing to work together with the body as a whole, but have their own ideas, their own feelings, their own desires, and their own doctrine, if you will, sometimes, and they spread division and heresy. Revelings, it says. That is, as if letting loose, as the dictionary defines reveling, or rioting, out of control, just doing what you want to do and not caring who it hurts or how it hurts. And then he throws in a real nice word, and such like. If your particular desire of the flesh has not been covered in those three verses, is there anything like this? Anything that causes disharmony or problems or discontent or difficulties is a work of the flesh. Because it means we're putting ourselves ahead of our neighbors. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's a pretty plain statement. You know, this one verse up here, in verse 14, covers all of those things. But he defined it more carefully so that we might understand what the works of the flesh are and how they cause problems and emotionally diffi- emotional difficulties among us. The people who walk according to the flesh will not be in the kingdom of God. Now, Satan has been basically kicked out of the kingdom of God, although he's allowed to visit and make accusations against us. But there will come a time when he is completely barred from that. He will never allow... Never again be allowed to go before God. 
Now, there are people that think he's going to be saved someday. I won't go there. I don't want to feel sorry for him. He's the one that's led us astray. He's the one that brought the works of the flesh through Adam and Eve. And he's worked on every one of us ever since. So, that bit of theology is not revealed really in the Bible what will happen. But I do know that as long as he doesn't repent and change from his selfish, self-centered attitude, he will not be in the kingdom of God. And he does not show at this point, as far as I can see, any indication of changing that. If there was any indication of him repenting, things would be different in this world. But he is still leading people astray. So there's no hint of that, and certainly not even in prophecy for the future, because God says, I will cast him down from heaven. Would you want to live forever in misery, wrath, anger, division, frustration, self-pity, self-centeredness, and all of the frustrations that we create among ourselves through our human nature? I don't like my nature. I know what God tells me I should be. But our nature pulls us away from that, and then it frustrates us that we can't seem to live up to what we're supposed to. So there is a frustration level in every human being that comes naturally. Because we have our desires, and they don't fit with the way God wants His kingdom run. And I would not want to be in the kingdom of God, I'm sorry, if I'm going to be then, like I am now, forevermore, I don't want to be there. I'd rather just die and stay that way. Wouldn't you? I want God to change the nature when we're resurrected or, or changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. So that we want to keep His laws, not want to break them. Every tendency of human nature pulls us down the wrong direction, even though we recognize it. God tends to be pulled upward, not downward. Now, I'd like to live forever that way if all my thoughts were happy thoughts, good thoughts, right kind of thoughts. That would be great. But to have to fight myself for eternity? Hey, I'm already tired of it. Every day is a challenge. Every day is a fight. To try to do that which is right when everything in us pulls us the wrong way. And we have to work at it through the indwelling and calling upon God and His Spirit to make it through the day without screwing up royally, don't we? in our thoughts or our actions. But the fruit of the Spirit, it says, now if you'll live by the law and you'll do what verse 14 said, you will have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. Why do you need a law that says you should have Meekness, 
or temperance. If you have those things, there's no law against that. They're good things. You know, the law is only made for things that will hurt you. The law is there because your nature creates in you a desire to do that which is wrong. So, God makes a law against this, and against that, and against something else. Now, it can be summarized, treat everybody like you want to be treated, but we find our ways of getting around that, so it's expanded. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. Paul said in another place, I die daily. He crucified those thoughts. He killed them because they're there, always ready to come out. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, vanity, ego, self-centeredness, those things. Provoking one another, envying one another. We allow ourselves to hurt each other because of our own selfishness. We create envy among ourselves because of our own desires and envying one another. And these are very human problems. Let's go to Matthew 4, 4. I got into a dissertation there, but I, I think it's important for us to review and understand that there are the rules, and those rules are there for a very good reason, and that's because of our nature. And if we did not have a lawgiver, a rule maker, to tell us which is a way to live and a way not to live, we'd be like the rest of the world out there. And we were, to one degree or another, weren't we? And we have left hurt feelings and frustrations and enemies behind us by some of the things we've done in the past. The way we've acted, the way we've treated people. And we're here, called out from this world to do it differently. Not to do things the way we used to do them, but to change that. To live by the rules for a change, if you will. Matthew 4, verse 4, I think I quoted this. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, from verse 14 there in Galatians 5, where it's summarized, Christ spread it out here. And he said, We are to live by every word of God. Not just some of them, not the ones we like, but by all of them. John 17:17 17, 17 says, "Your word is truth. This book is what is preserved for us." Now, do you can you imagine <clears throat> buying a an appliance or some kind of machine, a car that did not have a book with it? How to operate this machine? Anything you buy almost has that. Here are the rules whereby you operate this. Otherwise, there could be harm or death or whatever. They'll go on and on about it. 
Now, we look upon God as the Creator. He created us. He is the Almighty, the greatest power in the universe, the only real power in the universe. Do you think He would have created human beings and put them on the earth without a rule book? Yes, He did. He did. But He gave them just a couple of instructions to start with, apparently. And they couldn't do that. They had to do their own thing. Satan's thing. So then he started writing more and more rules, didn't he? Started writing through Moses, and he continued with the prophets and various ones, the apostles, until he had the complete rule book to cover the past, the present, and the future. So, he didn't give us all these words right away. Did Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have the New Testament? No. They only had part of the Word of God. It was sufficient in that day for what they needed to do. But he has called us, given us a new agreement, a new covenant, and he gave us some rules and guidelines in the New Testament where there are some changes in the administration. Now, the lawgiver, the ruler, is the same as always, and the rules are essentially the same as always. But there is a difference in the way they are administered today because of the Holy Spirit that has come and because of an understanding of the future that was not held in the same way in the past. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And he was speaking essentially then of the Old Testament. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. So this is the rule book. We're to live by every word of it. Philippians 2. Now we know this, don't we? You know whatever you know everything I've said so far today. It isn't anything new. Hope you're not going to sleep. I hope there's a war going on in you today where we look at these things and we see what God says. We review it, if you will, but we still find this conflict in us. And we need to resolve the conflict. We need to walk in the Spirit. Let's look to our Savior, Philippians 2. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any emotions and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, we just read in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit. And that's really what he's alluding to right here. That Paul's joy in them might be fulfilled, that they might be of one accord and of one mind. All thinking essentially the same, doing the same, treating each other as we would wish to be treated ourselves. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. It is our self-centeredness, our vanity, and our pride that gets in our way and causes us to give and take offense. Remember that. 
Any time there is offense, given or taken, there is some element of self-centeredness and pride involved. That's where it stems from. That's the root source and cause of dissension and trouble between human beings. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Wow. You see, there's no strife or vainglory if you value someone else and their opinion higher than your own. That takes the selfishness and the self-centeredness out of it, and it solves the problem. The contention goes away. Look not every man on his own things, but every man let every man also on the things of others. So be concerned more for them than for yourself. That's what he's saying. Now, do we have an example of any such thing like that? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Emmanuel, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So he equated himself with his Father in heaven. He identified with his Father in heaven. And he did not think it blasphemy, to be and to think like God. Now, our goal and purpose in life, the reason for which God created us in the beginning, was to become like Him, to think like Him and act like Him, so that we could be part of a society that is happy and peaceful and joyful. So it's not wrong to think, I want to be like God. It's wrong to think of yourself as God or to put yourself on a pedestal as being more important than anyone else. But to have the mindset of being like God is not wrong. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He was not even born on this earth as a pretty baby or a pretty boy. In fact, it says there was nothing about his looks that would attract you. He was, if anything, a very plain or even homely man. We might say ugly. Nothing that would cause you to desire to look upon him. And yet we have a society today that is, well, that's almost everything, is how you look. Especially with the women. It's held up by every media thing there is about how you should look good and be pretty and beautiful. And if you're not physically beautiful, then you're nothing. And so we have people today who paint their faces, who dye their hair, who enhance whatever parts of their bodies they seem to need more of or less of. And they go through all kinds of artificial things to try to make themselves look better physically, 
or younger or whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. And it is diabolical and it is contrary to God and to God's way. We should grow old gracefully, thankfully, that we are still alive, not try to look like we're 18. Because we're not. And if you're 90 and try to look 18, you just look like somebody that's old trying to do something that cannot be done. Why would we argue with our parents and with God about how we look? I do not think Christ had a makeover. I don't think he wore tight pants. I mean, for the reason of showing off his behind. And he wasn't fat either, so he didn't have tight pants. Why do we think we need to wear things that show our lower end or our upper end? Why do we think we have to show off? It's pride. It's vanity. It's selfishness. Why do girls wear things that are tight if they think they have a nice looking behind or chest or whatever? To show it off. For whatever the reason might be. They'll say for their husband. Well, do it at home then when nobody else can see. Don't do it in town. So you can get looks and then act like you resent them. Don't even get me started here. I guess I done did. But think like Christ thought. He made himself of no reputation. He didn't try to look smarter, prettier, more athletic, taller. He had no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Someone there to give, to serve, to love, to help, not to... Look good, smell good. Well, I guess smelling good's all right. But to look important, to look beautiful, any of those things. He made himself of no reputation and became like a servant. A servant dresses modestly and comes and goes and does what you say. They're not there to put themselves forward. And was made in the likeness of men. <laughs> That's bad enough. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the stake. So he was willing to give of himself and think more highly of other people than of himself. And he took that so far as to be willing to die for all of humankind. Now, that's putting yourself pretty low. Christ put himself lower than drug dealers, murderers, prostitutes, lawyers. Think of all the bad things you can. Politicians and tax collectors. He put himself below all sinners and said, I will die for them. 
He didn't die for the righteous. He died for the sinners. But it is so easy for us to lift ourselves up in our attitudes and think, I'm better than you. And we're not. And if we do think so, we need to get rid of our pride and our vanity and put ourselves on our own estimation below others, just as Christ did. Have this mind in you, which was also in Emmanuel. Think like he thought. Put aside the pride and the vanity. If he says dress modestly, then why not just do what he says? Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Emmanuel every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Emmanuel is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but within yourselves, having internalized God's way, but now much more in my absence when he wasn't there, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It is very, very difficult for us to act, to have the same attitude of humility and meekness that Christ himself had, is it not? So very difficult for us to be that way. We fight it. We don't want to do it. If the preachers tell us different, they're meddling. No, let this mind be in you that was in Emmanuel. Humble yourselves. Don't try to lift yourselves up. Sure, we ought to bathe. We ought to do our hair. We ought to take care of ourselves. But we're not here to falsify anything. We're not here to show off or flaunt anything. We are here to humble ourselves and serve one another as Christ served every one of us with his whole heart and by dying. Now, he died physically. Paul said, I die daily by putting myself out of the way, by crucifying the self, crucifying the flesh, and walking in the Spirit. And that is a daily battle. It was a daily battle for Paul. It was a daily battle for David. And it's a daily battle for you and me. How much does this world still affect us? We still have so much of the attitude of the world of I'm better looking, I'm smarter, my opinion is better, my way of doing it is better than yours. He humbled himself below, us, below the lowest scum of the earth. The worst sinners that have ever walked the face of the earth he humbled himself beneath, swallowed all his pride, and died for the scum. Now, when you put it that way, we have a long way to go, don't we? And a whole lot of self to get rid of. Let's go to 1 Samuel 3.
First Samuel three. I'm having trouble finding Samuel. And then the right chapter. Here we go. The child Samuel ministered to the Eternal before Eli, and the word of the Eternal was precious in those days. There was no open vision. So here's a time when God's Word had pretty well fallen away. Not many people knew much about it. They had lost track of God, lost contact with God. So this already fits, doesn't it? We're in a society that's pretty well lost contact with God. And we, by being a part of this culture and society, we're so far from God, it's unbelievable. And we still carry so much of that with us today that has been programmed into us from childhood. And it's hard to get rid of. And I don't say these things in anger. I am talking about God's way and our way and the conflict and the problems we cause ourselves because of the way our minds work and how hard it is to do things God's way. So we are in a world today who does not have much vision of God and the people are perishing, as Hosea says. And even in the church of God itself, scattered and splintered as it is, there is not much understanding of what is to come and what we need to be as human beings. You don't hear this kind of sermon much in most of the congregations of God. Because they're preaching the smooth and easy things and let's just go do the work. And they're not getting down to the problem that God had with the church to begin with. And if you never get to the root cause of the problem and why God spewed us, then you'll never solve the problem and have His face turn back to us. Because we're still in the same attitude that we were before. We have everything we need. We just need to finish preaching the gospel and go to safety and let the world go to hell. Well, I don't say it that way, but it's pretty much the attitude. It came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. So he was growing old. And before the lamp of God went out in the temple of the eternal, where the ark of God was, Samuel was laid down to sleep. Samuel, Samuel had been dedicated, remember, from birth to God. And had been sent to Eli by this lady who had had him uh, to be trained in the work of God. And Samuel heard a voice in the night, and he thought it was Eli calling as usual, and he jumped up and ran and says, what do you want? And he went, Eli said, I didn't call you, go back to sleep. This happened three times. And then Eli realized, hey, God must be calling, and I'm sure not. So he said, all right, this time, uh, if you hear it, tell him, I'm here, I'm your servant. Whatever you have to say, please say it. That's in verse 9. I'm just cutting this short for sake of time. And the Eternal came, verse 10, and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, speak, for your servant hears, just as Eli had instructed him. Now, God is calling. God is looking for those who will serve Him and will obey Him. And He has a great deal to say to them if they will but listen. Now, Samuel said, I'm listening, God. What do you have to say? Now, we're reading today what God, the rule maker, has to say about rules and about the nature that we have 
that causes us not to want to keep those rules when it comes down to us as individuals. The Eternal said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that hears it shall tingle. Now we know, and we're reading in the Word of God, things that God says He's going to do here at the end, and hardly anybody believes them. Our website is not being overrun with people that just can't wait to hear what we have to say. Guaranteed. They don't want to hear it. Now Samuel was an exception. He was one who wanted to hear what God has to say. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. Now, when God does something, there's a beginning and an end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. When He did something with Israel, there was a beginning, and then there was a point at which God made an end. And He told the Jewish house, the Pharisees and Sadducees, that He was making an end of their rule over Israel, and that they'd better listen to the ones that He was training at that time, the Apostles, whence came the New Testament, and pay attention to what they had to say. God has started spewing the church, and He will make an end of this, one way or another. We will either be building the temple of God, spiritual and physical, or we will not be. We will either be stirred by God to come or we'll be left out in the world, and that will be our end. It's going to go one way or the other. God will have to weigh that and make a decision. But that's the way He works. He doesn't start something He doesn't finish. Thankfully, as long as we listen, He says, I will not... Uh, I had it, then I lost it. He wouldn't begin something in us that he wouldn't finish. As paraphrasing. Verse 13, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. His sons started going the wrong way. They were thinking wrong. They were being selfish. They were making a god of themselves. They were doing their own thing, not God's thing. Now, we've reviewed a lot of things of human nature today, some of the customs and habits of this world that we still imbibe in because of our vanity and our self-centeredness and our egos. <coughs> now, that's what Eli's sons had done. God was not happy with it. And he punished the whole house of Eli because of it. Now, we're free moral agents, and each one of us will decide what we're going to do. Now, Eli did not do what his sons did, but he did not stop them from doing it either, did he? That's where we as parents have a very, very powerful responsibility before God. We're not here to compromise with the world. We're here to teach our children God's way and to restrain them from doing the things of the world 
And if we do not accept our parental responsibility of nurturing those children in the way of God, not the way of the world, and we let them have a foot on both sides, we are not fulfilling our personal responsibility or parental responsibility before God. And our whole house may be diminished or destroyed because of it. We need to take the role of parent very, very deeply and responsibly. If you think for a moment you can let your children do kind of the worldly thing on the side because you don't want to push them away, you've got stinking thinking, I'm sorry. It isn't that way. God said, train them in the way that they ought to go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. And if you compromise and say, I'll drive them away by making them keep God's rules, you are compromising with God and you're going Satan's way. And God made it very plain here with the house of Eli. Because he did not restrain them from doing their thing. The world's thing, if you will. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. God withdrew all blessing from Eli's family because of that attitude that he had with his children. And Samuel lay until the morning, and opened the doors of the house of the Eternal. And Samuel feared to show Eli the vision that he had had. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I, here I am, just like he did with God, finally. And he said, what is the thing that the Eternal has said to you? I pray you hide it not from me. God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Poor Samuel. Eli is his boss. Eli is the priest of God. And God had showed Samuel that the house of Eli was going to be destroyed and God's anger would never be abated through offering or sacrifice or any other way. His house was to be destroyed because his sons disobeyed God and he didn't do anything about it. And now Eli is asking Samuel... <laughs> To tell him, what did God say? What did God say? Now, if you were a young fellow at that point, you'd be scared about half to death. How are you going to tell Eli what God really said to you? Samuel told him every whit and hid nothing from him. And he said, Samuel, it is the eternal. Let him do what seems him good. Eli did not have a really bad attitude, did he? He said, God's the judge. You, you have to let him make the decision. But it didn't have to be this way if he had handled his sons the way God wanted him to handle his sons. But he let them go their own way. Or as we might say today, the way of the world and selfishness. And Samuel grew. And the eternal was with him. So God turned his back on Eli and he was training Samuel to be a proper priest. 
Now, we were not being proper candidates for king and priest in Worldwide Church of God. I'm sorry. We just weren't. We were not fervent enough, wholehearted enough, close to God enough, living by His rules enough, and God spit us out. Now, we need to repent from the heart, change our attitudes, our actions, the way we live, the way we act, the way we dress, the way we think. We need to change a lot of things that we are allowing ourselves to be pulled back into this world. And parents, do not allow that with your children. You may wind up the same as Eli. That would be sad. Samuel was there to learn the way of God. And we are here to learn the way of God. Samuel grew. The Eternal was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. If we're to be proper kings and priests, we cannot let any of these words fall to the ground. We're in training just like Samuel was. And we have to stand up against that which is evil and do it God's way. Even if those who teach us and preach to us aren't perfect either. It's between you and God. So often, the teacher or the preacher or whatever form of authority we might be under, we make our highest standard that which is their lowest standard. If they can get by with that, I can get by with that. If they got a bad attitude, I can have a bad attitude. No, we can't. Every high priest of men has problems, God says. And they have to sacrifice for themselves before they can go and sacrifice for the people. So he said from the high priest down to the elder or whoever, they all have to live by the standard of God, and every last one of them will not make it to that high standard. They will have their faults, their problems, their attitudes, things that are not right about every human being. And they have the same daily battle everyone else does to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. So, if you see the minister and say, well, he made a mistake... I guess if he can get away with that, I can get away with that. No, this is the rule book. Everybody is held to this. You know what? You have to repent every day, don't you? You know what else? So do I. Every day of my life, I have to apologize to God for things I've thought or done during that day. I do not have every thought into the captivity of Christ. and His high standard, and you don't either. So do we belittle each other? Do we put each other down? Do we find fault with each other? Do we criticize one another? No! We don't do that, do we? We wouldn't do that. Because we fall so far short ourselves. So that's why every Sabbath we get this book out and we start going through Scripture. 
You don't hear many cute stories out of me anymore. I used to have some 30, 40 years ago. You know, little analogies we use, and maybe they were nice-sounding stories. And we did, we did use the Bible, yes. But more and more, I've gotten to the point, all I want to do is read this. Stick our noses in it from Genesis to Revelation every week and read what God has to say. Yes, I'm supposed to expound it, to give the sense of it, to tie it together, so on. That's what Paul said preaching does. That's what it's for. It's what Nehemiah said. They read in the Scripture and they expounded it and, and gave the sense of it, the meaning, the understanding, how to put it together. So God expects that. But always remember, he holds me to a higher standard. I don't mean a higher standard of conduct, but to a higher standard of judgment. Those who teach, those who preach, those who expound the Word of God, receive a harsher judgment, are held more accountable to whom much is given, much is required. So the minute you walk up here and talk start talking, your judgment level has increased a great deal. And anyone who stands here had better keep that in mind. Not only of what you say, but also of how you act and what you do. Eli was held to a very high standard, and he did not restrain and teach his children the truth and make sure they did it right. And as a result, his children were killed and he was held out of blessing, and no sacrifice, no prayer, no offering would ever remove that. That's scary. But God has told us the same thing, hasn't he? If you don't do this, and you do this, you will not be a part of the kingdom of God. He's the Almighty, and he makes the rules. Then we choose whether we will follow the rules or not. It's that simple. And then he decides whether we will live or die. He will make an end of this thing. He is the beginning. He started us. He's going to end it one way or another. In life eternal or death eternal. One of the two. Therefore, choose life. That's what we every, every one of us has to do every day. Let's go to 1 John 2. Well, before we go there, I'll throw this in in the Old Testament. Let's go to, to Ezekiel 44 first. I have it down for later, but I just soon put it here. Ezekiel 44, um, talking about the priests and some rules for them. I won't go through the whole thing, but let's pick it up in about verse 22. Now, this is speaking here in Ezekiel 44 to 48, or actually 40 on, of the Ezekiel's temple, Ezekiel's Jerusalem, if you will, and how it will have to be rebuilt here in the end time. It's the only time frame in the past or in the future when it could be is now. So it's speaking not only of the spiritual house, but of the physical temple as well. And he gives all kinds of rules. Uh, verse 21, Neither shall any priest drink wine when they enter into the inner court. Uh, should be... <laughs> quite a while from bottle to throttle. It's telling me, if you're going to come up here and speak, you better not have any alcohol in you when you get up here. You better be speaking the Word of God 
not something out of a bottle. Neither shall they take for their wives a widow, nor her that is put away, but they shall take maidens of the seed of the house of Israel, or a widow that had a priest before, who knew something about being a priest or minister's wife. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. That's what I've been attempting to do all day, is show you how God's rules contrast with the way this world lives in the battle within us to follow the rules of the rule maker. And then in controversy they shall stand in judgment, and they shall judge it according to my judgments, and they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all mine assemblies, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths, and so on and so forth. But he's laying it down, and this is an end-time prophecy at the end of the book of Ezekiel, if you will. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And he's saying, this is the way it will be in the end time. I won't go back and prove all that, but I think if we know anything at all, we ought to know Ezekiel is an end-time book. And the last part of Ezekiel is certainly end-time, and it is not once Christ comes. This is something that happens before. I think that gives us a, a, a better reason for why sacrifices will be reinstituted, and I will get into that uh, when we finish the book of Ezekiel, but I think I'm understanding it more clearly as time goes on. You and I don't need an animal sacrifice, do we? No, we have the sacrifice of Christ, who is the end-all, be-all sacrifice for all time. But, it is very clear in Isaiah and other places that there will be animal sacrifices and that kind of thing in the millennium. Now, what are we to be here at the end? We are to be a people that is a light to the world and a microcosm of the kingdom of God. He wants a witness of how things will be in His kingdom established here right at the end so that the two witnesses can go out and tell the world about God's witnesses who are living according to the way things will be in the millennium. And he's going to set the thing up like the millennium will be. So, we need a physical temple with physical animal sacrifices done in the end time so that the world will have an example of what is about to be and how contrary it is to the way that they are. So it's not for you and me that sacrifices will be reinstituted here at the end. It is for the sake of the world who will get a preview, a trailer, if you will, of what shall be in the very near future and how life will be ordered, how government will be set up, what the rules will be, and how you live by those rules. So God is using us on a stage. He will use those who will obey Him to act out the way things will be in the future. And those people, right after Christ returns, are going to start doing animal sacrifices and learning from the very scratch, just like in the Old Testament, how to live God's way. And over time, once they understand, you've got to have a rule maker and you've got to keep the rules. 
That's what it's all about, is teaching them that. Right now, I'll do what I want. Unless the cops stop me. Is the way people think. And they're going to have to be shown. And you know what? Most of them are going to have to die and be in the second resurrection before they'll ever be humbled enough to do what we're talking about here today. And those who live through the tribulation and the seven last plagues are immediately going to be shown the rules. You make a mistake, you've got to sacrifice a dove, a goat, a sheep, whatever. They're going to be shown that before Christ ever returns, because we're going to act it out. I'm beginning to believe that more and more firmly as time goes on. He's going to set up a small window to show them the way things will be. Not for our sake, but for their sake. So that if they live, they will have gone through horrors, and they'll be ready to say, okay, I'll follow the rules. I'll do things the way you said. The way we had the rules, the way we lived. Boy, that sure turned out bad, didn't it? Woo! Don't want to go there again. What do, what do you want me to do? Oh, okay. They'll be humbled. Now you're fighting some of the things I've said today. When I talk about our activities and our dress and demeanor and attitudes and so on. That's hard. We don't like to hear that. We want to do what we want to do. So we fight it inside. We don't want to hear about it. I'm sorry. It hurts. But we need to know. And we need to be reminded. So that we can do things. So that we can humble ourselves. So God can use us as a light to the world. Not to look like the world. Not to act like the world. To be different than the world. So that we are a light. And so we can be used as an example. If we look and act like the world, what example is that? We're doing the same thing they're doing. No, we've got to change that. And God is going to use those people who are willing to humble themselves and change what they think of themselves, how they act, what they do, in every way. This is grade one. You are here to hear things that the rest of the world, the rest of the church, for that matter, is not hearing. Now, unless they're humble, they're going to fight it just like you get the fight in your mind. What does he have right to tell me how to dress? I'm not telling you how to dress. God says a woman should dress modestly. I know they make clothes bigger than those that some of you wear. And you can find something that isn't tight. You can find something that doesn't show your bottom end or your top end. I know you can do it. Don't you like the way God made your lips? 
Do you have to paint them red or pink or violet or something? Do you disdain your parents who gave you your hair color? That's the way the world does. It's the way the world thinks. If we do those things like they do, how can we be a light to the world? We're missing our calling. We're doing this thing in vain. We argue and fight among ourselves, and our self-centeredness and our vanity and stuff gets in the way. And we can't live in peace because we can't humble ourselves and esteem others better than ourselves, and therefore we have these little rips all the time. We need to examine ourselves. And we need to put our human nature and our selfishness down and be humble and meek, even as Christ was. 1 John 2 now. Now I cut myself short. I'd better get on through this. I just have a few more short ones that I want to tie in here. 1 John 2. And here I want uh, verse 3. Hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. There are a lot of people who say, I know the Lord, but they don't keep His commandments. They don't recognize Him as the commandment giver and the rule giver. So they want to do things their way. Here's how you know if you know God. If you keep His commandments. That's New Testament, last man standing, John. Whom Christ loved and was closest to on this earth. If you're going to listen to anybody, you better listen to John. He that says, I know him, and there are many of those, and keep not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word, in him truly is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. There is security. There is strength. Now, we all have our insecurities. We all doubt at one time or another what our relationship with God and is as good as it ought to be and what do I need to fix to make things better. But how well we keep His statutes, His Word, His laws is how we judge our relationship with God. If we say we know Him, then we keep His rules. If we don't keep His rules, then He says we don't know Him. We don't recognize Him for what He is. It's just that simple. He that says he abides in him also himself to walk even as he walked. He humbled himself below the lowest scum of the earth. Now there are those people that you would dare say humble yourself because of their status or because of uh, their beauty or because of their intellect or whatever reason you felt that they had some superiority you might humble yourself before them. Where the rub comes is when we think our opinion is better than someone else's. Our way of doing things is better than their way of doing things. When we get upset, frustrated, angry, miffed, irritated, and critical of them because we deem ourselves higher than them. That's what it's all about. is humbling ourselves and saying, I won't have that attitude toward them. 
then we will get along in peace. And we won't have these rifts and hurt feelings that we have. It is our own vanity and pride that does them. And Christ humbled himself below the Pharisees? Well, yeah, because they were the lowest scum of the earth. He lowered himself above the worst sinner that walks the face of the earth and died for that sinner. Be it you, me, or he. That's what he did. And we find ourselves having difficulties lowering ourselves above each other or below each other. He set the example. Walk as he walked. Keep the commandments the way he kept them. Really, truly love one another as he loved us. Giving his very life. And that's what we're to do. Not go out here and be shot at sunrise for somebody else, but to change our life, our thinking, our reactions for the sake of each other. That is dying daily. Not just once, but his real accomplishment, in some respects, was dying daily. Humbling himself before all mankind when he was God in the flesh. And being a humble servant to them, whoever they were. And even when he says, hey, you're not even an Israelite, you're just a Gentile dog. Yeah, but don't I even get the crumbs off the table? He said, absolutely, you're right. Be healed. That simple. Didn't put himself above her at all. Now, the truth, his attitude was not necessarily wrong. In fact, it wasn't wrong. Because there was that status as an Israelite or as a Gentile. And God had made that clear in the Old Testament. So he was perfectly legal in making that statement. But she said, can't even a Gentile have the crumbs? Yes, my love, you can have them. He set aside the status quo and showed mercy on that Gentile woman, who by law did not by nature require it. But he was willing. So he placed himself beneath the Gentiles. Now that does not to say the physical Gentiles matter anymore. He has sacrificed himself for you and me because we are now a part of the body of Christ. And he also will then later apply that sacrifice to the rest of the world who are today spiritual Gentiles, place himself below them. Now, he did it in effect when he died, but it is not expanded to them yet, see. He's only offered it to a few now, to 144,000 to be the bride and the kings and rulers in the world tomorrow. Then he will expand that which has already been legally taken care of to apply to them. It doesn't now. They're deceived. They're taken. They're snared. So that they don't have to be destroyed. But after they're humbled, then they'll be given the truth when they can receive it. First uh, John five nineteen, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are found we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Emmanuel. This is the true God and eternal life. 
Little children, keep yourselves from idols. First commandment, idolatry. Second John 4 through 6. <coughs> Excuse me. I rejoice greatly that I found of your children walking in truth as we have received the commandment from the Father. And now I beseech you, lady, the church, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love. Here's the definition of love. That we walk after His commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Many deceivers are in the world, but we walk in the commandments of God. That way we know we are in the truth. Matthew, I won't go to Matthew 5. It's, uh, it talks about human nature there and the attitudes we ought to have. But for sake of time, let's go to Hebrews. Uh, here, verse eight, chapter 8, verse 10. Now, here's the agreement that God makes with us. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Eternal. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. They'll all know Him. That means then that they will all be keeping the commandments, the rules of God. If you're going to have a society that works right, Everybody has to follow all the same rules. There can't be different rules for different people. Everybody has to do the same and not make themselves an exception. Well, I know he shouldn't do that, but maybe I can. We can't excuse ourselves. And God will make sure that that is not done. If we excuse ourselves from his laws, he will excuse us from life and from his kingdom. It's that simple. Matthew 19. We'll emphasize that particular point. Matthew 19, verse 17. Here's a young man who wanted to enter into the kingdom of God. He said to him, Why call you me good, speaking of Christ? There is none good but one, that is God. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, this guy says, well, I'm the commandment keeper. You and I can say, well, we keep the commandments. But how hard was it for Christ to show him that he didn't really? Not in the way that God wanted it done. He said, which commandments? Emmanuel said, you shall do no murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He began quoting the Ten Commandments and then a summary statement of those commandments. So when Christ said, if you'll enter into life, the kingdom of God, which commandments? The ten. The young man said to him, well, I've done these all my life. From the time I was a kid, I always kept the commandments. Emmanuel said to him, all right then, if you will be perfect, go and sell that you have and give to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So he was going to put his wealth above God. Idolatry. <laughs> what do you mean? I love God, but I ain't giving anybody my money. 
God often brings things down to a monetary standstill. Then said Emmanuel to his disciples, Verily I say to you that a rich man shall hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. And uses the camel, eye of the needle then. Because it's so easy to put money ahead of God. So very, very easy. And that's idolatry. So, he didn't even have to question him all ten. Just He had him on the first one. You had me from hello. Remember that one? All right, let's go to Revelation. Let's see how this ends. Because he says, I'm the beginning and the end. And we read earlier, once I start something, I'm going to finish it. Back in Samuel. Well, let's see how God is going to finish this. We can go from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture. But how does he finish it? Revelation 21, verse 27. He began it. Let's go to the Omega now. Revelation 21, verse 27. Speaking of the kingdom of God that is to come down at the beginning of the millennium, the holy city. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The only ones that will be there are those. The 144,000, the bride of Christ. That's it. Out of all the billions of people that have lived on this earth and the six and a half billion that are here now, God is going to select 144,000 total. And the rest who are living and making a lie will not be included there. They cannot come into the holy city. They'll still be on the earth in the millennium, and there'll be some who will not obey. So the Egyptians might not, then they won't get any rain. So, there will be some who refuse, even after the seven last plagues, to do it God's way. But they won't enter into God's kingdom or into the holy city. Uh, chapter 22, verse 14. <clears throat> I, or verse 13. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I started it, I'm going to finish it. And here's the end of it. Blessed are they that do His commandments that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. <clears throat> Here's what the rule maker says about the rules. For without are dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, and whosoever loves and makes a lie. So he, he defines there which commandments he's talking about. The ten. Verse 19. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. God is the lawgiver. God is the rule maker. And if we keep these rules, we will end a life and live forever in happiness and peace. If we deny these commandments and continue to live in sin and live like the world, we will not be in the kingdom of God and we will die eternally. He is the beginning and the end. Why will we die, O Israel? <clears throat>